0: Well, I know it's been a while, but it's kind of Matt's fault, really. Um, Yeah, go on. Books of the year. Yeah, Books of the year. Well, there's kind of less of the year for us to have books from because Matt has been... What have you been doing, by the way?
2: Well, so, I I mean, we've been trying to get my laptop to work and I'm still on my old laptop. um, And I've even tried plugging my Ethernet cable into the Wi-Fi router, but I don't think it's worked um, because basically my laptop is so old. So... Guess what? Let's see how long I last on this podcast. Let's see whether I make it all the way to the end. Uh, My money's on not, but uh, we'll soon wait and see.
0: I I just sense the the soul being sucked out of this podcast. Like 30 seconds into the podcast, everyone is assuming that one of the reasons we've been away for such a long period of time is for something new and magical to be created in your part of... North oh well, London, I mean we well we've though. both
2: been creating something new and magical. You so you've been writing uh, your book, uh, your latest book. So that is now because yes. we can talk I mean, we're in so it's mid December. Nice
0: change of this. nice change of subject. <laughs> nice change
2: of subject. <laughs> so well I've been writing Yes, as well, I've finished a book. But you have you've, you've finished oh, right, your okay. first is it your first draft you've finished of your latest?
0: I'm waiting for it to come back from the editor um nervously. And then there'll be a line edit which I'll do in probably after Christmas, I would Okay. In which I'll begrudge every single line that Obviously. I have to change. Yeah. How, yep. how, how, do <laughs> how dare you just, oh, yes, <laughs> you're the editor. How dare you? What's your experience? Oh, much more than mine. Okay. That's, uh, that's very good. Um and you have are you have you been writing
2: something? Yeah, so I've I've been writing and I'm I think I'm about seventy odd thousand in uh so fiction again uh serial killer so far only two dead so i need to kill another person and then uh and then i think the fourth person is not going to be killed but there's going to be very much a threat that the fourth person is killed i might be giving away the ending there already a spoiler yes yes already
0: uh, a spoiler (laughs) (laughs) so yes my guess is uh, it's definitely it'll be the guy who wears a scarf and a beret
2: yes yes the drama student uh stroke person who goes to rada that's the one to always look out for i find um sure uh, it's worth saying I, I mean obviously we do apologize for not having done the podcast for so long uh loads of things have been going on you might have noticed in the world things have been uh, going on uh but it's yes, good it's to know that uh, plus
0: our we have a hot rocking show on greatest Hits radio which so true here between four and seven monday to friday Rachel Stainton, missing your funny and fantastic podcast. Last one I've got is the Q&A from the 20th of August. I mean, I know you're busy, Matt, being horsey. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore. you both need holidays. And Simon, I know you've been ill recently, but don't leave it too long. Please, began to think something is the matter with my podcast provider, and keep double-checking I'm subscribed in hopeful anticipation. Yes, I I think we should persist with that. We've actually been knocking them out, as it were, two a week, and... If you haven't been receiving them, Rachel, I'm afraid your podcast provider has really let you down. We've had all the best sellers. Yeah, everyone's all been, been deleted now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Hawkins uh, tweeted, Has the podcast finished? It seems an awfully long mid-season break. Elton Barker, finally, for eons now, I've been refreshing my fruit-based device. Still not funny, sorry, crossing streams. And John Boyne's excellent Q&A keeps appearing. I had wondered whether the trolls had won out. Glad to hear not. No, no, it appears that the trolls have not won. Imagine that.
0: Vicky says, has Matt been relegated back to his magic attic?
2: Um, uh, no, I'm in my so I'm in another bedroom, uh, uh, but w- with very bad lighting. I've chosen the room in the house with the worst possible lighting. Uh, that's what I'm very happy with. Yeah.
0: Now I think we've got some technical sorted, and the fabulous Ed Caesar joins us from his luxury apartment somewhere
1: <laughs> in the world. Hello, Ed. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Uh, where where do we find you? At home. I'm in Manchester, um, in South Manchester so I'm at the top of the stairs where I do my work I'm at the top of i'm I'm in my office right it doesn't look like an, it does look like you're on the landing that is <laughs> a, that is an accurate observation yeah i'm I'm on the landing do the new yorker not pay you <laughs> enough money to have like an office proper it's no but it's it's I mean it looks it it looks like I'm on a landing but actually Um, You know, I've got a lot of space here. I can spread out. It's great. So that's fine. All right. Now, um, so Ed's book is The Moth and
0: the Mountain, A True Story of Love, War and Everest. Matt is now going to describe the cover and then we'll do some. Oh, yes. uh, Yeah. So uh, uh, Matt was um, the guy who told me about this uh, incredible book. So Matt, uh, just describe what we're looking at here.
2: Yes, no, I love this book so the, what we 're looking at is the the well virtually the entire front uh, page of this of the of the book. Uh, is taken up with, um, oh, is it, I suppose it's a um, it's a painting of Everest, it's not a picture of Everest, and uh, in, in blues and whites and, and blacks, but then picked out in gold right across the front of Everest, the moth and the mountain, and Ed Caesar's name in yellow, just peeping above the peak of Everest. But it's a great-looking cover.
0: It also has what looks like a sticker, but turns out to be part of the cover, the Telegraph Sportsbook Awards 2021... Winner that's what I've got on mine, uh also um, a quote at the bottom from Philippe Sands mad magnificent uh and moving so um before we hear from Ed Matt, tell me why you were so enthusiastic about uh, why why did you want to get ed on uh, well um i've so Ed's
2: writing I know quite a well quite a bit about I've I've read a couple of his previous books uh, including 2 hours which is a book about uh, running the marathon in under 2 hours now that came out uh, a few years ago and it was the first book of Ed's that I read and I loved it and uh, it's one of my favourite um, sport books and anyone who knows this podcast will know that I'm a massive fan of sports writing and Ed is an excellent, excellent writer. So when I knew he had a new book out, I couldn't wait to read it. Uh, I happen to be judging the, the William Hill Sports Book of the Year prize for this year. And uh, and I was really happy when I heard that Ed's book had been entered for that. And frankly, his book absolutely, it ambled onto the long list and then shot onto the short list. It is an outstanding piece of work. And I was reading it this summer and I gobbled it up. I mean, I'd, I'd finished it within a couple of days. I just absolutely gobbled it up. Uh, a superb story. And um, yes, no. So, so, so I read that, and then I came in to to, to work, and I uh, I then uh, my the juice, Simon, and said, "You need to read this book. This is superb."
0: Yes, you did. I wonder when you said y- you read two hours. I think a number of people might have thought you read it in two hours, and thought that's that would not be good. The-
2: I mean, even for me, that would be good. No, it's it's called two hours. It's I, I mean, by now, obviously, this book was a few years ago, and Ed will tell us more. But at the time that Ed was writing it, two hours was seen as this sort of mythical time of people being, of, of any runner being able to run a marathon in under two hours. Now, of course, it has been done uh, since the book was written. But uh, yes, the, the title of the book is Two Hours.
0: Let's bring uh, Ed into this. And I, I just want to, because to win anything is fantastic, but it doesn't, it doesn't, f- and obviously you can define a sports book any which way you want to, but it's sort of, this is, is so much more than that. How would you do, if someone said, tell me about your book uh, and where in a bookshop would I find it?
1: What would you say? Well, I i mean, thank you for that lovely intro, Matt. But I mean, I find my book in all sorts of
0: yeah. different
1: places. And one of the really nice things that's happened in the last couple of months is that it's landed on tables near the front of the bookshop in sort of, you know, picks of reads and all that kind of stuff, because it's had this very nice afterlife with awards and so on. But before that, it was very difficult. You know, is it travel? Is it biography? Is it in the sports section with alpinism? Is it history? Well, the truth is, it's all about it's all of those things. There isn't there isn't a bit of the bookshop that says, um, "Mad blokes trying to escape <laughs> their damaged lives," but maybe there should be, and because that's what the the story is about. Escape. the sto- The story of this book is about. Escaping the things that hem you in and your the damage that you've already done in your life, um, and to me that's what was appealing about it. it what you know, the Everest um, part of it is kind of fascinating and is this wonderful kind of narrative drive for the book. He's trying to get to the top of Everest. That's a wonderful motor for any story, but that's not really what the book is about. If you wanted to say it's not about this, you know, uh, it's not about a great climber. It's about someone who is trying to escape what has happened in his life and the mess he's made of it and all the damage that he's, you know, received and caused. Uh, And it's about the messy business of being a human being. And there isn't really um, a specific space for that in the bookshop, but it is also what almost every book is about in some way. Um, and and the man in question we haven't mentioned yet is Morris Wilson. So
0: introduce us to um, what we need to know because obviously you tell all of the story uh, in the book, but introduce us to Morris Wilson. Who is he? Where does he come from? And how and why does he want to make this escape?
1: Morris Wilson is um, was a man who was born in in Bradford into an aspirant middle class family in Bradford and. They were in the textiles business at a time when Bradford was, uh, you know, the world capital of the wool trade, one of these really exciting places to live, one of the engines of the industrial revolution. And this family is on the up. So his dad was a factory boy and then owned his own mill. You know, he's going up in the world. They live in a nice street. Um, they, all the boys, all these uh, four boys, would have gone into the textiles business had it not been for the First World War. And and the First World War affects his family in a huge number of different ways. For Morris, it means he's going to serve on the front lines in Flanders. And he does so with incredible bravery uh, and a fair amount of luck. You know, he, he survives on a day when 500 of his comrades don't. Uh, and he wins the military cross. You know, he does these ast- astonishing feats of bravery, but he's also, as he understands, very lucky to survive. And he comes back to Britain and to a Bradford that doesn't, you know, bear any resemblance to the one that he left. You know, it's a town full of widows. It's a, you know, it's a town where half the young men on his street are no longer there. And like a lot of people who've been through this experience, experiences a kind of restlessness. Like he, he just needs to get away from... Not just the sadness but the but the the future that he had imagined before the war no longer really exists for him uh and so morris watson is someone who can never really settle from that moment on he burns through relationships he burns through marriages he travels around the world new zealand mozambique canada california he's looking all the time for the thing that's going to uh light him up to heal him and you know to cut a long story short the thing that he eventually settles on that's going to make sense of his life, going to salve his wounds, uh, he decides he's going to be the first person to climb to the top of Mount Everest. And that is his... (laughs) That's his plight, I suppose, his story.
0: Yeah, and um, even even though he had no qualifications or training. But but, but before we get uh, into that, I think you've described... uh, So you read about him, you read a paragraph back in 2011... um, About him, but there there must have been some spark that lit Ed. I mean, I think you've referred to a kind of a mania that that overtook you in in the next few years as you tried to tell the story. What was it? Just the fact that you thought you'd uncovered something quite extraordinary? I don't know. What is it that lit your flame in the way the the mountain lit
1: Maurice Wilson's? Yeah, it's a really it's it's a complicated question to answer because I don't really know you never really know as a writer why the why are there certain stories that you cannot let go of but uh, what happened with this was I, I learned the outline of his tale and I thought that is astonishing someone with no climbing experience no flying experience tries to fly a plane to the Himalaya and then climb Mount Everest like why would someone do that why would anyone do that and the more I read about Wilson the less satisfied I was with what was out there about him, what could be known about him. And I started just gathering string in the way that journalists do. Like I was trying to find anything that I could about him, trying to find original documents. And I suppose the reason is firstly, that there is something just incredibly vivid about the adventure that he went on that I found completely engrossing. Um, I was also really struck by the idea that he, never really had any chance to succeed but was so determined and I found that quite moving um and you know my dad was also you know I I mean the great thing that everyone else picked up on immediately (laughs) but which took me a while to see is that you know my dad was a pilot and he died when I was very young in a in an accident and flying was a big part of my family's law you know it was you know there's a there was a framed poem on our Uh, in our house when I was growing up next to a picture of my dad with um, this poem, High Flight, which is this absolute hymn to flying. Oh, I've slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter silvered wings. And, you know, I was very taken by the idea of flight uh, in both of its senses, you know, flight up into the sky, flight away from all your troubles. And for all of those reasons... Morris Wilson's story just hammered away at me. I used to wake up thinking about him. Mm. At a time when I didn't, you know, I hadn't agreed to write a book about him. I was writing another book. I was writing Two Hours, the one that Matt just told you about. I was always had at the back of my mind that I was going to have to write about this strange, hypnotic man and his crazy story at some point because it was much more meaningful to me than it seemed to be to anyone else who had written about him. He was dismissed. I think that's what I'm He was dismissed by other writers as an eccentric and a crank and I felt like I wanted to give him his dignity and his I wanted to tell his story in a much more empathetic way just to say what are the reasons why someone would do something like this? Why would you even get into the plane? Why would you want to achieve something like this? And so those were all of my kind of complicated motivations for following this story. I th- it's an astonishing story,
2: Ed, and I think I think for for listeners who aren't familiar with the book and aren't familiar with the with the plot of the book, I think it's important for us to say. I mean, you can sum this book up in a line. As you said, he wants to be the first guy to get ho- get up Everest. Not only that, his plan is to fly a gypsy moth plane into the side of Everest and then climb to the top from there and that's That is the kind of plot to a book it 's almost like that the you know the elevator pitch i 've got a story about a guy who wants to conquer Everest by flying a plane into the side of it and then climbing out it 's just an astonishing, astonishing story. Had this story been told before. Um, and I think in your book, you mentioned that there are there are other accounts, but you had access, you had access to papers, which gave you a completely different perspective on this story.
1: Yes, I mean, I, so the the other books didn't, I found very frustrating, actually, because you have all these questions and you want them answered and that they, they, they weren't by, by those books. You know, he, there was a book in 1957 called I'll Climb Mount Everest Alone. And the author then had the opportunity to speak to the surviving members of the family in Bradford. You know, he was only in London and he never did. And I found that, you know, I wanted to go back and shake him. Um, yeah, your phrase there was I had access to various things that, um, other people didn't, but in fact, I had to just go and ferret them out. Um, I had access only because, you know, I found someone in Northern Germany who had a box full of Wilson's letters, um, I had access to all of these, you know, unbelievable bits of Wilson alia that I found in a house in Bradford because I was able to find the last living relative, the great nephew of Morris Wilson, still living in Bradford, um, who had this box in, uh, in a you know, dresser in his dining room, which had, you know, the second half of a poem Wilson had written to his lover from, you know, the, from the walk to Everest and these incredible pictures Um, you know, these annotated diary entries. I mean, it's just, you know, it was a piece of research and and kind of detective work that was incredibly hard to do. And I'm pleased in a way that I started working on it well before I actually, um, you know, agreed to write the book because it was a process that was eight years long of finding all of this stuff and you can't hurry it. You know, you have to find people, you know, have to write to various people and you have to go to all these archives all over the place. And you have to you have to have just be completely um, obsessive about the research. And eventually it came together in this picture that you see in the book, which is that you have all these different sources and you can find him on a shipping manifest going somewhere strange. Um, And yeah, it's it, it was I was determined to find everything that was out there that I could. And the
0: great nephew that you talk about, Ed, tells you that it that there's a secret, yes, which he which he do, about Morris Wilson, which he doesn't want to tell you, and he will take to his grave. And you kind of tell us in in the book. I don't know what 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 can you say <laughs> about what the great nephew's secret is.
1: I, um, yeah, this is a really. I mean, can you imagine my frustration that finally. I was in the house of this person who was in a position to tell me something unknown about Wilson, something that's not written down. And then he, then he told me, I can't tell you, I'm going to take it to me grave. Um, so that is about Wilson's sexual predilections. as far I, I'm almost sure. So as far as I understood it, I think he was a secret transvestite. But I also think he was heterosexual and that his relationships were coloured by this, you know, private, um, you know, these private longings. It would have been very difficult, I think, to have had any outlet for that kind of um, thing in 1930s London, even though the nightclubs of 1930s London were uh, pretty out there um and people were seemingly having a wild time but yeah there is this kind of you know there's there have long been rumors about wilson that started as soon as his body was found and i think it might be one of the reasons why his story has been kind of dismissed and lodged in the kind of you know cranks and eccentrics bracket is because um people don't know quite what to do with that information um so for me it was important to deal with that kind of sensitively but also to say that I can't know ultimately because there's no and also you're not trying him for a crime <laughs> you're you're just trying to understand what who he was um so yeah that was a kind of complicated thing to deal with as an author
0: Stephen King uh in his on writing book talks about he's talking about the art of writing and he's talking about how um what writers do is they discover it's like discovering something precious in the ground and you have to use all your skills to get it out, to excavate it unbroken. Now, I've never really kind of gone along with that, apart from one – I wrote a book called Mad Blood Stirring, which is basically because I discovered a story about a guy called King Dick who was in um, in Dartmoor prison at the end of the, uh, the War of 1812. Anyway, but it was – the more I read about that story, it's a bit like you talk – you're reminding me about myself talking about... The way you talk about Morris White, Morris Wilson. Sorry, Morris White was the leading of Earth, Wind & Fire. Excellent. Excellent <laughs> um, you talk about Morris Wilson the way I was talking about having found this story about King Dick and wanting and feeling a sort of a sense of that this was important, that this was the story to tell and that you, Ed Caesar, was you were the person to tell it. And it's almost like you were on a mission... To get this right, would,
1: would that be fair? Absolutely, completely accurate. I felt, I felt this huge burden to get it right. I felt uh, that's not. Can you feel a burden? I felt under a huge burden. Yeah. Uh, I felt burdened by the responsibility of getting it right. I was so um, dutiful <laughs> towards. The truth in the, you know I, I i really wanted to make sure that there was nothing in here that was sketchy and when i don't know something i say it i say that i don't know it and that's that's interesting with someone like wilson because there are because he's not a major figure and there are periods of his life when you can't know what's happening and so you have to do something with those interstices you have to you have to not fill the gaps with rubbish you have to tell the reader at, at some point you know like I don't know what happened here and I'd love to um but there are also periods of his life where you can know an awful lot and um it's just a very strange act I think biography because you're attempting to know someone who's been dead a long time you know to whom nobody's gonna talk to you uh, about and you're trying to recreate him from all these bits of paper and all these clues that's quite a strange uh, sort of, you know, act of necromancy, I suppose. You know, you're, you're communing with this dead person <laughs> via all these mediums. And um, yeah, I, f- I, felt, I felt very dutiful towards the, his real story. I, I, there are many aspects of this book Ed, that that
2: resonated with me but the one that um, absolutely stood out was um and this is not going to come as any surprise to people uh who who know me or listen to this podcast and that's uh, and that's Morris Morris's triumph over class because bluntly the people the, those in the establishment did not want him to succeed and in fact did everything they could To stop him. He hadn't gone to the right schools, he didn't belong to the right clubs, and they didn't like the idea that this guy might be the first to get to the top of Everest using this pretty unorthodox plan. Was that with, I mean, as I say, that resonated with me more than anything else. Was it something that stood out to you as you were writing this?
1: Yeah, I love that. I was, you know, I was sort of cheering him on. The idea that someone with his dropped H's and, you know, whatever, who'd been a temporary gentleman in the, First World War and then had not gotten, you know, not got his due when he'd finished. Um, that there were all these chaps with monocles trying to turn him back and he was getting the better of them did make me feel this huge warmth towards him. I loved all that. Um, but I mean, I you know, his chippiness notwithstanding, he's just a, you know, he's a complicated person because he treats, he treats some people very badly, he treats women very badly and so on, but he's very equitable Uh, in a way that would have been quite anathema I think to lots of people particularly in India when he arrived you know he when there's an earthquake in Darjeeling he's the only white man who bends his back and actually helps the you know local people to repair their houses and picks through the rubble because he thinks that people are the same he thinks that you know wherever you come from you're essentially a, a person and um, that would have been a really weird thing for an Englishman to think in the 1930s, because you know, the setup of the empire was essentially racist. There are certainly people who are, you know, better than the people that they're controlling. Um, you know, his relationship with the Sherpas who take him to Everest is I think very equitable. Um he's just uh he's a he's a massive contradictions, but I think a lot of this. A lot of his worldview comes from his, you know, his family in Bradford, who had this idea that, you know, if you've made money, you shouldn't just keep it to yourself. And they were part of the Cinderella Club in Bradford and they were always trying to feed, you know, poor children. And that was the right way to be successful. Um, it wasn't about sneering at other people. Um, there's this beautiful line in one of his letters home when Wilson says, what an awful thing it must be to be a snob. You know, real manhood lies, um, you know, with people who live on the street, people who, you know, <laughs> people you come across. It's not with the so-and-sos and the don't-you-knows, <laughs> which I love. Um, so he had no, he had no time for all those people. He hated authority. Um, I'd love to have known what he was like as an officer in the First World War, um, because <laughs> that's obviously like a tricky. That's a tricky position to hold if you're a second lieutenant or a first lieutenant in an infantry regiment, but um, but yeah, that was it. That was how he thought.
0: And having got so close to this story, and you know, maybe in the grips of the mania that um, that we were referring to, and becoming sort of obsessed about this story the way you have, how difficult was it, Ed, to to write the final? Few chapters when obviously, I mean, obviously, when people pick this book up, they know that he's not going to succeed. But how difficult was that
1: to write? Oh, re- really hard. My, my my wife teases me about this, but there was a, um, at the end of the summer term, like our kids are at a local primary school, and at the end of the summer term, a lot of the parents meet up in a local park, and someone might bring along a bottle of Prosecco, and um, the kids muck about, and we all have a drink. And I remember turning up at that at the end of a summer term, and I was just approaching this period of the book and one of, uh, I was really, really kind of down in the mouth and I wasn't full of the joys of, you know, it's the start of the summer holidays and all that. And one of the other parents said, what's up, Ed? I said, ah, you probably won't understand, but I've got to kill Morris Wilson tomorrow. And (laughs) (laughs) it was really, I sort of really, it was really weighing on me. I really didn't want to do it and I didn't know how to do it properly um and i, I um yeah I t- it brought home to me how much time i'd spent in his company uh and how much i loved him really love him like i think a uh, you know i've i sort of used this analogy before but i sort of love him like a difficult family member you know I'd, I'd have hated to go on holiday with him but you know i still love him and it was yeah it's very difficult to say goodbye to someone like that who you have spend a lot of time with and i think i well i hope that comes across in the writing you know that it's res, you know it's respectful and you you know i hope you feel as i did when i was writing it when you get to that bit in the book as
2: as simons already said there's obviously you pick this book up and you pretty much you, you you're already thinking to yourself right well he, he can't have succeeded or else i'd have known about this guy although as i was reading it i was starting to think maybe he did succeed, and it's all been wiped out because, as I say, the establishment didn't didn't want him to. So it, it read to me very much as a thriller. Did you have that in mind as you, as you were writing, that you were thinking people aren't going to know, or most people aren't going to know this guy's story, and I need to write it gripping
1: them to the end? I did feel like that, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret here, which is that the first time that I tried... That I wrote this book. The first draft of this book, I tried a structure that I thought was gonna power people towards the end, and which did not work. Uh, I, you know, I was I was doing I was skipping back and forward more even than I do now with chronology, and I was trying to use all of that kind of narrative. You know, I was trying to use narrative momentum to get there, and but it just didn't work for whatever reason. And um, eventually, I came eventually I came to this idea that you needed to start the book with him. uh, the, 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 The opening section needs to finish with him in sight of Everest. And then you needed to go back to tell his whole story because you needed to tell the reader, okay, this person gets to Everest. Whatever else you know about his life, you know that he gets to Everest. And then you're going to leave that section of him trying to achieve the thing that he desperately wants to achieve for the end and that I think is the that's the motor of the book because you have him at Everest at the end of the first section and then you're constantly powering towards that point where you know he's going to have his kind of end of level baddie to beat (laughs) um, with this mountain (laughs) um that's him and and it actually weirdly that structure came to me in the shower I was just I was like trying to work out how to write the book again and then I suddenly thought oh I know how to do this and I went and sketched it out on a bit of paper and I stuck it to my cork in my office. And that's how I wrote the book. And that's what, you know, that's exactly how it's, how it plays now. And very early on in the book,
0: Ed, you say, I think I've got this right. Uh, why did he need Everest? And why do you care? Do you, yeah. you kind of spend the rest of the book answering those questions, but how would you sum up your answers to both of those questions?
1: Why did he need Everest and why do you care? He needed Everest for so many reasons. He needed Everest to uh, make something of his life. He needed, his life had not lived up to his expectations for it. He needed Everest as some kind of balm, I think, uh, as a way to heal himself. Um, he needed Everest. Because he was um, desperately in love uh, with a woman who would have loved to have seen him at the top of Everest. So many different reasons. He needed Everest because his, his beloved brother, Victor, was at home totally broken with PTSD. Um, and he wanted to prove his worth to his family. So, so many different reasons. And why do we care? Because I think we're I think we're moved by people who have these outlandish dreams, uh, and we want to know what drives them. Uh, I, you know, I find I find um, I find it. You know, mountains don't need us. You know, mountains are in. A, you know, they just stand there. They are a certain height. We made up this sport sometime in the nineteenth century we made up this sport where we have to get to the top of them. The people who live near Everest have, you know, never really had any thought about climbing to the top of it before all these strange white people started turning up. You know, it's not, they're not things that need us. We need them. And what I like about mountains and mountaineering is that, the, you know, the, they have both a real and a metaphorical significance. You, you get to the top of a mountain, it's like that's a very definite plot point you know you have achieved something you get to the top and that's how we how we think about success you know we get to a certain point we stick a flag in it and then we come down um so we care because we like to see people pitted against great obstacles Uh, it sounds it
0: sounds to me even though this book is you know has sold so well it's won the awards that it has it's now on the front table at the bookshop rather than the difficult to find <laughs> table uh, at the back of the bookshop that you're quite reluctant to let this go you know, on, on the film show a couple of weeks ago i interviewed um steven spielberg about west side story and i was asking what he's going to do next and he basically just didn't want to let go of west side so he just wanted to keep talking about west side story because it had got its hooks into him um, and it sounds to me—I mean, you have to keep writing because you, you know, family, and that's what you do: uh, more, more articles, more, uh, uh, more books. But it sounds as though, even if you're not a mountaineer, that there's something about this story which has still got its hooks into you.
1: Yeah, it's, it's true. I find funny. If- You know, I'm doing lots of very interesting and kind of deep dive New Yorker work, but I'm not, I haven't got another book idea at the moment people keep asking. I'm under a certain amount of pressure from my publishers um, to have another book idea, but I do not have one. And I I find it, I am finding it difficult to move past this one. And I mean, part of the reason is very, you know, in a very lovely way that lots of people still want to talk to me about this you know, it's, it's and so and while you're still talking about a book, it's quite difficult to really um, close off, you know, you, there's a state of concentration that you have with a new book where it needs to be almost total, for me at least, I, I just shut everything off and I just want to think about this one thing and I'm not there yet, I haven't quite said goodbye to Morris um, and maybe I want, you know, there's some kind of TV in the works with this, so maybe I won't for a while yet, but um, I do need to somehow say goodbye to him. <laughs> I'm not quite sure when that's going to be, but hopefully soon, so I can work on something else big. Uh,
0: just say more about the TV.
1: What uh, what's rumbling there? So there's yeah. a there's a there's an idea. Well, there's a there's a you know there's a deal to to make it into a, uh eight or ten part limited series. Um, and Stephen Mangan, the actor, is writing the oh, right. script. He was very taken by the. Story, and we had this kind of interesting. Not to let too much, you know, sunlight in on the, this kind of weird sausage making business of like how TV gets made, but like, you know, there are a few people who are interested in this book. And um, I remember thinking, I heard Stephen talk about Morris Wilson and this story, and felt immediately. Uh, not just that it should be a Brit who made the who made the you know TV adaptation but that it should be someone who really understood and uh you know got Morris and all of his weird ambiguities and the it's quite a British story I think in lots of ways but but um Stephen just called me up and spent about an hour on the phone talking about all the things that moved him and he found interesting about the story and I just knew that I had the right person so we'll see what the Script's going to be like, I'm sure it'd be great, um, but yeah, he's just got to finish playing Scrooge, I think, at the Old Vic. And that's that right. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's
0: going
1: to He's a very, he's, and he's a very funny guy as
0: well. So maybe, maybe he, maybe he's, maybe that's what's going to make it sing.
1: You know, I think it is. A, you know, Morris Wilson's very funny. Uh, I think. I think he's got a kind of weird sort of. You know, there is a weird comic element to him as well as all these deep currents that run through him I, I just you know I would lo- I would love for a script to um, bring him to life in a way um, and can you just imagine the flying scenes you know flying over North Africa and all of that I just think it would be so beautiful and I would I mean obviously I would watch it but I would have watched it had I not <laughs> written the book, yeah. Look, if you're not going to watch it, then no one else. I know who is. I'm very much the target audience. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no, uh, you absolutely are. Anyway, Ed, it's a, it's an absolute um, treat. I mean, I and I can imagine why your publishers will be pestering you because they will want something. I, I, my sus, my suspicion is when you come up with a book, Ed, it'll have nothing to do with mountains. It'll have nothing to do with tiger moths um you'll have found something a million miles from all of this and you'll you know but they'll be waiting whenever you've come up with that idea
1: i hope so yeah the, one of the frustrating things i think for a publisher about me is that i have a kind of wide range of interests and i'm not I, you know i don't stay in one lane if you look at my new yorker stories they're all over the place you know i was in yemen this summer uh, i did a story about north korea recently I'm just doing a big crime, I'm just researching this big crime epic for the magazine and it doesn't fit very neatly. I'm not, you know, I haven't written 10 books about spies, Um, but I hope what knits them together is that what knits everything together is the same approach, which is that uh, to be obsessive, to find everything and to hopefully inhabit the story before you write it.
0: Matt, you're a connoisseur of Ed's, of Ed's writing. so um, Yes. And you've re- re- read a lot of his other stuff. Tell him what he needs to write next. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> as long as he stays away from serial killers, then that's fine, because that's what I'm working on. So if you cannot do um, anything involving a serial killer, Ed, that, I won't would, do be, that. that would be really I won't good. do that. Have that
0: oh, I'll really. have that genre entirely to myself. Yes. And I'm, my book is about tinnitus, so if you can avoid tinnitus, that would also be <laughs> you know, I, will. I will. I will. Uh, Ed Caesar's book is The Moth and the Mountain. You can find it on a whole host of tables at your local bookshop, and I'm sure you can uh, order it online if that's uh, if that's what you fancy. Ed, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Uh, you're going to do a Q&A, which in uh, the podcast will be available uh, separately, um, uh, so there'll be more from Ed uh, on another one of our uh, podcasts. But uh, for the moment, Ed, thank you very much, and I hope you have a happy Christmas and a, an exciting 22.
1: Thank you so much.
2: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips. And even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums.
2: ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. We are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.